Hello and welcome to the Better Human podcast. My name is Adam Wagner and I'm a barrister specialising in human rights law and this podcast is all about human rights. Today I'm joined by Harriet Johnson who is a barrister at Doughty Street Chambers where I'm based as well and we're going to be talking about issues arising in human rights involving women and the police. Harriet is a specialist in criminal law, civil wrongdoing and actions against the police. She's a trustee of Women in Prison, which is a national charity supporting women affected by the criminal justice system. She's a founding member of Women in Criminal Law. She's an advocate for women's rights and a founder of Doughty Street Women Events. The Better Human podcast is kindly sponsored by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. For 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you want to support the podcast and you find it interesting and illuminating and want it to continue, then please go to patreon.com forward slash better human and consider just giving a couple of pounds every month, which will help support the podcast and keep it going. So hello, Harriet. Thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Um, We're going to discuss today women and the police, um, which is a very broad issue. But what are the kinds of, in in a snapshot, what are the kinds of issues in your practice and your experience which arise? Well, I think we are talking about, aren't we? We're talking about domestic abuse and police historically having had a problem with recognising that as a problem. We're talking about sexual offences, which, although they do affect men, and it's really important to say that at the outset, they do disproportionately affect women. And there has historically been a problem with those offences not being properly investigated or not being uh, fully and robustly prosecuted. There's also, um, and again, staying with the, the issue of domestic violence and domestic abuse, there are or have been, but I I think continue to be problems within the police that fail to see women as victims when they end up actually being accused of committing certain crimes. And there have been some quite high-profile examples of those in recent years. Um, But where police look specifically at the act that a woman did, or a child did in some cases, rather than looking at the context in which that took place. So I think there are partly failures to protect women from Um, abuses that they suffer and partly failures to recognize the impact that those abuses can have on women and girls. So it sounds like a a lot of this you might put under the umbrella of sort of cultural problems. I think so yes I think the police as part of um, society will always necessarily reflect some of the problems that we have in society but I think we have to expect the police to lead the way on better understanding of issues that really affect women rather than to be able to um, hold back because society hasn't quite got there yet. And we'll come a bit later, you talk about high profile examples, we'll talk about the a bit about the example in Cyprus of the, the as we're recording this, the, the young woman who was um, accused of making up allegations of rape. Yes. And she, and as we in the days before we recorded this she's now um, apparently I think back at home Mm. Um, but that gave rise to some of the kind of issues which I guess are are more general yeah but let's start from a human rights perspective if we're going to put put this through a human rights lens I think this is an area where in actual fact it's a it's it's one of the areas of human rights law where there have been quite sort of important developments mm. that have come directly through human rights law yeah. particularly in recent years um, and we'll talk about some of those cases um, but what are the key the key rights should we start with article two and three sure um, the rights to life and the rights to be well not to be tortured or inhumanly treated or degraded yeah So Article 2 includes, within the wording of the article itself, a right to, not just a right to life, but a right to have that right to life protected by the state. Um, Article 3, the freedom from torture or inhuman or degrading punishment, doesn't have that explicit wording in it. Um, But there have been some developments in recent years um, where the courts have upheld, um, as a human rights abuse, failure by the state to properly investigate those crimes. So... um, the, the DSD case, we call it, but it's the case that um, started with the failure to properly investigate the allegations that um, led to the ultimate conviction of the rapist John Warboys, the black cab rapist, as he's known. Um, 
in in the DSD case, which is what it was called in law because of the um, anonymity of the victims, the well, the Court of Appeal and then the Supreme Court recognised as an inherent part of that right to freedom from torture, freedom from degrading and human treatment, the right to have the police properly investigated because, and again, the Court of Appeal and the Supreme Court upheld this, that that right is effectively meaningless if you haven't got any way of of enforcing it and if the police won't help you to enforce it. So, the, I mean, it's slightly... An, an difficult to understand i guess if you just read the rights because there's no mm. mention of investigations yeah and, that's and, absolutely and, right and i think it's fair to say that this is something which the european court of human rights once it started thinking about well how can how, the state yes the state shouldn't take life yes and the state needs to put in place a system where where it's where um the unlawful taking of life and all the unlawful torturing or inhuman or degrading treatment doesn't happen. Mm. And a big part, and that can't all just be ex post facto. That can't all just, just all be, well, here's some damages. Yes. Once something's happened. Yeah. It has to want, you have to learn from your mistakes. Absolutely. And, and that's what, and that's what the investigative process is all about. Mm. And that seems to be something which has, you know, it, it, when you look at human rights law about what, how has it changed our society i think the this investigative obligation does seem to be a really important aspect in lots of different areas of law but particularly in relation to the police because obviously they're the primary investigators absolutely and i think one of the really interesting developments about human rights law and particularly the dsd case or the Warboys case is that it it offered an opportunity particularly for women and for other victims of sexual violence to hold the police accountable for investigations that were flawed that they ne- they hadn't necessarily had before because uh, as you and I'm sure some of your listeners know it is tremendously difficult to sue the police for negligence in the way that you might be able to sue um you know your electrician who wires your house and then it catches fire if the police conducted an investigation that was absolutely shambolic and by the by the standards of an um of any other professional police officer would be held to be completely appalling. It's it's very, very difficult to sue the police for negligence, in fact, to the extent that it's nearly impossible to sue them for negligence in terms of failing to properly investigate something. So the the DSD case is interesting and is is really useful tool, I think, for human rights lawyers um, to hold the police to account for failings to investigate really serious crimes in the way that they perhaps couldn't so easily before Let, let's cut break that into two because i think that that point you make about not being able to sue the police for negligence in most cases mm. is really interesting because people listening to that might think exactly what what you said well if a builder comes to my house and does a bad job or if i get some sort of service for my business and they do and, and they do a negligent job I, I'm, I can sue them and get money and that's straightforward part of life in a advanced democracy mm. but why is it that that it's so the courts have made it, and it's the courts that have made it so difficult for people to sue the police. It's an interesting question, and I, I think we come back to that unfortunate umbrella term of, of policy and floodgates, um, which I think we all get rather frustrated with. There's, there is a, a fear, I think, amongst the courts that if you make it possible to sue the police for negligence, then everybody who gets wrongly convicted of a crime or everybody who gets properly convicted of a crime but feels that they shouldn't have been convicted um, could potentially bring an action against the police. I think there's a fear amongst the courts that if you make it easy or if you make it straightforward to sue the police, then the um, police force will be tied up in uh, potentially vexatious litigation and and won't be able to properly do their jobs. I mean, I, I think there are better ways to balance that than the almost outright ban that we have at the moment. But um, but I, I think it is a fear of opening the floodgates to litigation and tying the police resources up in that when we know that they are already um, perpetually under-resourced. Yeah, and I mean, you get the same argument made about doctors. Absolutely. Um, and and uh, although it's, it's much more straightforward to sue a doctor than it is to sue a member of the police force. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let, let's look at, the Warboys case. So, mm. so you go back to 2009, um, black cab driver John Warboys convicted of 19 serious sexual offences, including rape and sexual assault. 
And those charges only relate to 12 victims, but there was strong evidence and un- almost unbelievably mm. that there was much wider offending, um, including as many as 100 victims. Yeah. Um, and he used date rape drugs and assaulted women in his cab. And then two of Warboy's victims who were known as DSD and MBV mm. complained to the Met police that they had carried out this seriously flawed investigation and it, and it went to court. And what what... How did they, first of all, what did they use? What law did they use to go to court? And then what happened? So they they said that um, in addition to the state having a duty not to itself torture people or to inflict um, inhuman or degrading treatment, the state also has a positive obligation to protect people from that treatment. That doesn't just mean stopping it from happening, but it also means that if it happens, then the state has a duty to investigate properly and to to treat it as the serious crime that it is. Um, So what they said was that the treatment that they'd suffered at the hands of John Warboys, which is serious sexual violence, was... um, equivalent to torture in human or degrading treatment which I don't think anybody would argue with they said that the the Met were obliged to conduct an effective investigation into the allegations and they painstakingly went through point by point the failures um, in well first of all failures in the investigation when it eventually got going and second of all going back to before the investigation got going the the warning signs that the Met missed and in particular the failure to link a number of allegations made by people who talked about getting into a black cab, being given a drink, not remembering anything, um, and failure to to link those telltale warning signs and to think that perhaps they might have a serial rapist on their hands, which, had they done it earlier, could have um, prevented some of the later attacks being carried out. And before DSD, and I guess the the argument the the Met Police made all all the way up to the Supreme Court in DSD mm. was would it be would it be right to summarise it as yes there may have been failings but they're not but the police aren't are, are effectively immune in court yeah. from being accountable for those failings there may be you know investigate in, in internal investigations disciplinaries yeah. that sort of thing but it's not something you can bring to court and get um, a remedy in, in in an english court for yeah that's exactly it and they they relied on that historic protection that they've always had um from litigation under negligence but the supreme court were very clear that this is a this is a different strand and one of the one of the unique elements of Article 3 is that it's the only non-qualified right. So it's the only right where we don't get to say sometimes it's all right to torture people if it's for X reason or Y reason. Um, so the police weren't able to hide behind their historic protection from actions in negligence to say, well, we can't we just let this one go? Um, they also argued that um, it needed to be shown that it was a, a systemic failure rather than just failures of perhaps individual officers and in fact they lost on both points of that because the Supreme Court said actually it it appears that it was in this case but also in any event it doesn't need to be systemic failings it just they just need to be serious enough failings to amount to a breach of these article 3 rights so they do still need to be serious failings it does still need to be a serious crime um it's it's tough to bring an action under this head for police not properly investigating the shoplifting from a person's shop um it needs to be a very serious crime that amounts to a breach of article 3 um but the police aren't immune from um having actions brought against them for failure to properly investigate those crimes anymore so it it it, it actually comes back to the inhuman and degrading treatment absolutely and the unqualified nature because when you say when you talk about um, systemic that mm. brought to mind the article two right to life cases where if you're i mean it happens quite a lot in, in inquest law mm. if you're looking at the conduct of a hospital yeah you will not be able to just look at the individual failings of a doctor yeah in an art in, in, that led to somebody's death even if they're quite serious failings if they're individual failings it won't be a breach of article two yeah. because unless there's a real and immediate risk to life so it's quite narrowly defined yeah and it has, it has right. to be systemic yeah whereas here because you're in the sort of zone of somebody a perpetrator it's not it's not the police yeah. it's not the police who are inhumanly 
um, treating the women. Mm. Although, although I suppose they could. Be, there's another s- scenario as where they could be. But in, th- in this case, it's the perpetrators, John Warboys, mm. who is carrying out the inhuman and degrading treatment. Yeah. And the investi- because the investigation failed to unearth that or or address it. Yeah. That's where that's where the link is. Yeah. And again, I mean, it's important to emphasize we're talking about really serious failings in the investigation that had they not happened, could potentially have led to him being arrested and um, detained and convicted a lot sooner than he was. So it's we're not talking about a situation where if the police can't catch somebody who's committed a crime, despite doing everything they possibly can to to find that person, they're potentially in breach of Article 3. It's only those um, those failings and the, um, the failure to properly conduct the investigation that leads to that breach. And, and can you talk about, in, in general terms, what kinds of failings they were talking about? Well, sometimes it related to failure to obtain and uh, retain evidence. So um, the... We know that there was some CCTV in uh, the Warboys case, but in many cases we're talking about, um, when we're talking about CCTV, one of the things that I think was a surprise to me when I came to the bar and started actually um, acting in cases was how short a period CCTV is retained for. In some places it's two weeks, in some places it's a month, in some places it's 24 hours, and then they roll over the tapes or they wipe the discs and that's it. So police have a very short window of time in which to see certain um, elements of evidence, CCTV being an obvious one. There were also, um, in the Woolboys case in particular, one of the early victims from the 2007 case was was found not to be credible by police um, because she was seen on CCTV that they had seized to be kissing him goodbye as she left the taxi. And um, police took quite a, a narrow view of that and I think thought that that must mean that what he in fact said in his interview, which was she'd thrown herself at me and I, I was powerless to stop her, um, but on any view anything that happened between us was consensual, um, Police looked at it very narrowly just to see whether or not they could disprove that and ignored the fact that she had talked about what on any view were very obvious symptoms of being drugged. So they didn't think about whether or not she had the capacity to consent. So quite narrow-minded interpretation of the evidential standard that they were required to meet and quite a narrow interpretation of um, a woman's behaviour in that regard as well. And and that sounds like going back to culture really Absolutely. about, about yeah. th- this idea that you know ah uh, she gave she gave him a kiss at the end you know so exactly. so clearly she she was um she was enjoying it or that, that sort of thing exactly and you hear that you do hear that a lot in general discussions yeah and over these a, kind of issues about consent mm, it's a difficult thing um i mean this is one of the, the huge problems that we have with the prosecution of sexual offenses is that well i mean there are a number of problems but the first of all you have the fact that in general um and again i'm i'm hugely generalizing um but sexual offenses tend to take place in private so there are very rarely any any eyewitnesses to what happens and in those circumstances you end up with one person saying that one thing happened another saying another thing happened and the criminal standard of proof as as your listeners will know requires people to be sure and that's that's a very high bar so, so that's the the jury. That's that's a jury before they convict anybody, or or if it's a judge, then a judge. Exactly. They have to be what what used to be called beyond reasonable doubt, and is now just they have to be sure. Yes, I which is that a high up. bar. I looked that up the other day because I was in a trial and and um, thought or heard somebody saying we until recently we used to say beyond a reasonable doubt and I um, got curious and looked up when the direction had changed and it was 1954 which just goes to show how recent (laughs) how recent things are for lawyers Um, but so I mean it is a very high bar and it's it's proper that it's a high bar because being convicted of a criminal offense is a very serious thing and it's it's I think entirely right and proper that we require a judge or a jury to be sure before they convict somebody but the difficulty that we have on a legal level, is that we're already starting on the back foot because prosecutors have to prove something to the criminal standard and sometimes proving so that a jury can be sure they need to prove what was in somebody's head. Because um, because 
sexual offences are, are unique in that they routinely involve an act that in one circumstances could not only be lawful but a, a joyful and positive thing between two people and in another circumstance could be one of the most awful things that could happen and the difference is purely the mental element it's purely um the intention between those two people so when we talk about mental the mental element yes as, as lawyers we're talking about what's going on in we split between the act and the the mind yes absolutely absolutely and, and what's going on in someone's head yeah is this you have to prove the act and the intention Absolutely. And those are two, the two gateways you have to get through to get to the conviction in a ke- in most offences. Absolutely. So to use a, an entirely separate example, um, if I met you in the street on a dark night and pulled a knife on you and said, give me your wallet, um, most people would assume that I was threatening you with violence unless you gave me your wallet. But if I did exactly the same act and used exactly the same words to you in a play that we were both rehearsing for and you and I both knew it was a play and those were pre pre-prescribed lines and we both knew it was a fake knife um then i don't think anybody would think for a moment that i would have committed a robbery um so the mental element of something is a really important thing usually there are um there are very obvious links between the mental element and the physical element in a crime um but in sexual offenses it's it's much less clear so it can be quite difficult we also have institutional difficulties so the difficulties that we've talked about of the the long history i think of of police failing to take rape cases seriously um i think like i said to you earlier they are they are getting better and i've i've worked with some incredible police officers who've gone over and above what you would ever expect them to do to make sure that somebody who committed a serious sexual offence was brought to justice but I have also, um, through the course of my practice, seen cases where, you know, I, I had a, a case where a police officer wrote in an email that the rape allegation was plainly bollocks. Um, using those words. Using those exact words. Another one where a police officer described an allegation of rape as an abortion of a case. And this is, this is not 40 years ago. This is, you know, recent past. So some officers have got a lot better at it, and I, it's really important to caveat that. It's it's such a tough job, and there are officers who are really good at it, but in my experience, those officers tend to be the exception, not the rule. The Better Human podcast is supported by your contributions. If you find it useful and interesting, I would really appreciate if you consider giving just $3 a month. That's just over £2 via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash better human. And if a couple of hundred people do that, then that will make the podcast sustainable. And I can carry on interviewing interesting guests about fascinating human rights subjects. What I think would be really useful for people listening, because quite often you hear the prosecution of rape is proportionately low. Um, and, I, and I think we, we, there's figures, I mean, that I was just looking at an independent article, which I think came from Home Office Statistics, saying that the proportion of rapes being prosecuted, so from allegation to prosecution, was 1.7% yeah. in 2018. Um, and that was down, amazingly. Um, so that, that, yes, excuse me, that was down from 5.6% in the previous year. So that is an extraordinary drop-off. That is, you know, yeah. when you're talking about 98, more than 98% of the yeah. allegations that are made don't lead to prosecutions. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure what the, the, the prosecution, the actual successful prosecution rate is there. But what I think would be useful is just thinking about from the, from the initial allegations, so from from when a person turns up at the police station or calls up the nine 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 or the or the reporting system and makes that allegation, what happens then that leads to that? In your experience, leads to that extraordinary drop off. Well, there are a number of factors, and it's important to say right at the beginning that that statistic the 1.7 percent of rape allegations resulting in a charge it's um, as you pointed out it's not the same as resulting in a conviction and it's also 1.7 percent of those reported not of those that happened um, so we need to also bear in mind 
that there will be a number of people who don't report serious sexual offences um, being committed against them. Between a person reporting a crime and in an ideal situation, the case being brought to trial and, and hopefully the, the right um, perpetrator being properly convicted, there are a number of steps. So the police investigate. That usually means that the um, the complainant, as we call them at this stage, they don't officially become in legal terms a victim until um, after a person has been convicted. So the complainant will go into um, a police station or sometimes into a separate uh, specialist um, building where they conduct what we call an ABE interview. Now, ABE stands for Achieving Best Evidence, and it was part of a protocol that was brought in um, that was designed to make it easier for people um, who were vulnerable or who had been um, subjected to violent sexual offences to give their evidence so they weren't giving it in a police station with an officer writing down notes. They were um, talking to somebody, talking to a human being with as much time as they wanted. That video um, or that interview, forgive me, was then video recorded. And later on, um, if and when the case comes to trial, that video is typically played in court as that person's primary evidence. And would they have someone with them doing that? They can have somebody with them. Um, for example, if it's... Um, if, if the person is vulnerable or a child, then they would typically have an appropriate adult there, maybe a parent or somebody else. What, what do you mean by vulnerable in that context? Um, so if a person has, um, well, I mean, vulnerable can mean any number of things, but if we're talking about a person who has a particularly low IQ, for example, or um, other learning difficulties that might um, make it difficult for them to fully understand what was going on. So if they're leg legally... In, they require some sort of assistance. Yes, exactly. Um, but we also, I mean, the officers conducting these interviews are much, much better trained now than they have been in the past. So um, officers are very careful to have careful conversations to, um, they're trained to elicit all of the important facts without um, doing so in a way that makes the person feel like they're being interrogated. And so that that part of the system, I think, has got a lot better. It's a lot gentler. It's a lot um, more understanding. And it, it hopefully is a lot less intimidating than it used to be. After that, the officers will have certain lines of inquiry that they'll follow up that might involve um, obtaining CCTV evidence. It might involve DNA testing. Um and, and any other number of things. So if, if the person says that, um, the if the complainant says that the person who did this to them um, approached them outside a bank, for example, there's likely to be CCTV footage of that. Um, so there are a number of lines of inquiry that we would typically expect the police to follow up. And uh, like you said before, they have to do that quickly. Yes, absolutely. B because, A, because that, that evidence is so important. Yes. Because it's objective evidence which the jury might one day look at and say well this person's lying absolutely one who, whichever person it is and also because it tends to be deleted yes yeah um they then when they're satisfied that they've got a decent case together they approach the cps and ask for a charging decision what what that means is they ask the cps to consider um formally bringing charges against the person that has been accused of this crime. And, and just to pause there, just mm. so that we've very clear what we're talking about, the prosecutions, the Crown Prosecution Service are not the police. No, no, they're a separate body. Obviously, they work together very closely. Um, but the Crown Prosecution Service um, don't, uh, they don't take instructions from the police. They um, give advice to the police. And they're, they're consulted by the police about charging decisions. And when they make those charging decisions, they are asking themselves two questions. One is whether it's in the public interest to prosecute. And I, I can't think of any hypothetical cases where it wouldn't be in the public interest to prosecute a serious sexual assault. And in fact, we've seen that they, um, the CPS have, have reflected that, that feeling um, in their internal literature in recent years. The other, which is slightly trickier, is whether there's a realistic prospect of conviction. And in those circumstances, it's difficult because the CPS have to not just think about um, 
whether they think somebody should be convicted or whether they think evidentially there is enough for somebody to be convicted, they also need to put themselves in the minds of typically a jury and think about what they are going to make of the evidence and what they're going to think of it. So in that sense, public perception and the cultural um, problems that we've talked about absolutely become a factor because if you've got 12 jurors who are going to... um, find somebody difficult to believe because she didn't cry, for example, when she was giving her account, which is incredibly common, actually, that, and you know, our, our societal expectations of how victims should behave are very different to how victims usually do behave. Um, but if we've got a jury of 12 people who think, well, she didn't cry when she was talking about it, and so I'm not sure it happened, do the CPS accept that and think, well, realistically she didn't present in the way that we might expect somebody to so um, there isn't a realistic prospect of conviction so we shouldn't charge or do they think in those circumstances it's our job to try to change their minds about what a victim typically looks like Um, so that's when the the legal framework and the cultural background potentially come into conflict and we've got a really important um, decision for the CPS officers making the charging decision i mean that I, i'm not a criminal practitioner so i'm, I'm the my only, only experience of juries comes in inquest which okay. is which is which is a bit different mm. but that to me and, and I, I don't have very much experience of the cps but that to me sounds quite well i mean potentially unprincipled if you're considering the cultural aspects mm, i agree because if the if the if the if there's sufficient evidence and the only issue is is about you know what you see on TV versus what, or, or reading books or magazines versus mm. what you're going to see in the courtroom. Then, like you say, isn't that a challenge of advocacy and education rather than something which would should prevent the charge? I mean, is that your experience of what happens in real life? Is that they in the back of their minds they're thinking, well, this particular jury in this particular area are going to look at this woman and think, well, I'm not sure about that. They're just not going to get over the threshold. Uh, yeah, it's it's tough. Um, in my experience and in the, the cases that I've seen, the CPS tend to be more keen to prosecute than the police. Um, and, and the problems that I have seen um, in the cases that I've been involved in tend to relate to police investigations rather than CPS bringing the decision to prosecute or making the decision to prosecute. Um, but there is, as, as you might know, the, the Centre for Women's Justice are, are bringing an action against the CPS at the moment for um, what they say is an undisclosed um, target of a 60% conviction rate in uh, rape and serious sexual offences, which they say means that the CPS are more likely to drop cases where they don't think it's going to play well with the jury to meet that target. And that, I I think, is absolutely... Um, well, it's far beyond morally questionable. I think it's quite morally wrong. Um, in my view, and of course I say this because I'm a barrister and an advocate and I spend a fair amount of time in front of juries, but in my view, if you've got a case that you don't think is going to play well with the jury, you don't abandon that case. You find a way to make it play well with the jury. You find a way to better educate them. You call expert evidence about the ways that victims of serious sexual assault might present. And we we have got a little better at this. So now there is a specific judicial direction um, whereby at the end of a case, before a jury goes out to consider its verdict in a criminal trial, a judge will tell the jury that they are not to apply stereotypes to how they think victims ought to behave. And they specifically tell juries different victims behave in different ways. You mustn't think that um, any of these old stereotypes necessarily apply. So the court system is getting better, but that realistic prospect of conviction test for the CPS and the cultural biases that I think we still have in cases of serious sexual assault are still a problem. So I've just got the figures here that we were talking about about before, Mm. and this is reported in The Guardian in in just last September, that the number of prosecutions in 2018 was 3,034, which was down from 4,517 the year before, which is a a massive decline, 33%. 
And in terms of convictions, it's I think it's about 2,500 um, in 2018 versus under 2,000 in 2019. So it, it I mean, it's it, it's in the region of about. I mean, it, it does. It is about two thirds, mm. I, I guess, of of convictions. So that whether or not they're working to targets, that's the kind of rate. But you still get back to this one point seven percent of allegations lead to a prosecution. Yeah, um, which is and 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 that in terms of culture, what do you think it can be done better? going forward um and you know there is the 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 center for women's justice and these organizations that work to try and make those figures better but what Mm. what what are the general at the moment what are the general thoughts in the area about what is going wrong and what might be done better for me the two areas that we really really need to address are training and resources within the police the officers that I have encountered who have done really excellent work and done it incredibly well have been have received in-depth training about how to how to deal with victims of um, sexual violence, but also about how to then properly investigate it and the factors that are unique to um, sex cases that don't necessarily come up in other criminal investigations. How to um, how to cover every possible investigative line so that when it comes to a charging decision they're presenting a full package to the cps that's tied up neatly with a bow so the cps find it nice and easy to say yes let's charge this person the training i think when it's given is very good but it doesn't get given to every officer it doesn't um get repeated as often as often as it should there aren't the same number of refreshers that you would expect and of course the cuts to police numbers have had a huge impact on the police's ability to deal with this. Another part that that I think we we ought to talk about, and it's it's something that's making the police's job a lot harder, is the developments in technology over even the last decade. You know, each of us carries around in our pocket a tiny computer that has more data on us and our lives and our interactions with other people than was ever kept in previous years. And and just to a little advert for the last um, podcast before we recorded this. It's Susie Allegra. We talked about exactly that kind of issue, the issues around this unbelievable advance in in technology, which is affecting every part of our lives. And that was about privacy. But Mm. here here we are talking about evidence. Yeah. And I mean, this is, again, one one of the classic human rights conflicts is if that evidence is available in a world where we didn't have any right to privacy and where we didn't have any limit on resources, police would take the mobile phone of the accused and of the complainant and would um, conduct a thorough examination of everything in there. And if they found messages um, from him that incriminated him or messages from her that exonerated him, then that would bring the investigation to a close much quicker than it might otherwise. So these are, we're, we're, we're going back to this, we're really going back to consent. Yes. And, and, yeah. in, in all of this. Yeah. And, and looking for evidence of consent or evidence of lack of consent. Absolutely. Did this person, did this complainant consent or did they not consent? That, that's the crux of, of the evidential question really in these cases. Absolutely. But there's also, um, and, and, That's what makes it so difficult, Um, again, because we come back to the question we were talking about earlier of trying to prove what's inside somebody's head. But this is where mobile phone evidence, just looking at the the pros of it for a moment, can be incredibly useful. It is a a slightly disgusting and appalling fact that there are people in the world who, when they commit um, serious sexual violence, will record it and to use this very recent example of of the Manchester case of the most prolific rapist that we've ever seen although his his victims were um were men he was the the way that they were able to identify so many of his victims who did not know until police knocked on their doors that they'd been victims of serious sexual assault was because he took videos of um of what he was doing 
So, and, and this is this is Renhard Sinaga. Yes, I, I'm, I don't know yeah. if I'm pronouncing his name right, um, but he was drugging people. Yeah, he was um, he was targeting um, drunk men in the gay district of Manchester, very often straight men, um, pretending to be a good Samaritan, taking them home, drugging them, and raping them, and recording it while he was doing it. And in those cases, had it not been for the the video evidence that police found on several mobile phones in his home. The prosecutions, I, I think, couldn't possibly have gone ahead because they had so many victims who didn't remember what happened at all because they'd been drugged. Um, it all happened in the privacy of his flat and there was no um, memory of it afterwards. So that's a classic example of a case where evidence stored on mobile phones can be absolutely vital to securing those convictions. And it, in fact, we know that in that case, there were um, cases where there's CCTV footage of men going into his flat with him. Um, but because footage of what happened wasn't found, they weren't able to proceed with the prosecution because there wasn't any video evidence of, of the rape and the victim himself didn't remember it, so they couldn't put any evidence before the jury. So there are potentially enormous advantages to evidence that can be stored on mobile phones that, that didn't exist 10 years ago. The downside is, first of all, Again, if we, if we ignore Article 8 and the right to privacy for a moment, which is not something I'm in the habit of doing, but just for the purposes of this discussion, we're talking about thousands and thousands of hours of investigation needed to, to get to the bottom of um, what's on somebody's mobile phone. And sometimes you are looking for a one-sentence text that is, you know, could have been sent six months afterwards or could have been sent six minutes afterwards. So the... The span, uh, the time frame that you're looking at is enormous. It's a, a needle in an evidential haystack, but it can be the clincher for cases like this. And just to, I think one of the things people who aren't lawyers or, mm. or police officers don't quite get about this is I think people, where you, you hear these con these controversial cases where something was missed or the mm. police didn't disclose all the evidence. But if you've ever been del delivered the con the printed contents of a mobile phone. I mean, you, you, how much are we talking in terms of just let's talk about double double side printed lever arch files full of full of pages? Yeah, I mean, I've I've had cases where they amount to twenty, thirty thousand pages, and that's of WhatsApp messages, emails, text messages, phone calls, sometimes cell site data associated, which is where um, just to explain briefly. When we make a, a phone call through our mobile phone, it links up to the nearest cell phone mast and that can give police or prosecutors or investigators a, a rough idea of where the person using that phone at that time was um, within certain parameters. So it, it's rarely absolutely conclusive, but when combined with other evidence, it can be incredibly helpful. Um, but yeah, tens of thousands of pages of evidence. And we as lawyers, I think, can get frustrated when we're given um, that amount to look at. But it, I have to say it must be even worse for the police when what we get is usually what they've narrowed down. Um, we don't have to wade through every Google Maps search or every time that they looked at their fitness tracking app um, to narrow down and, and get rid of the irrelevancies. We tend to only get given... A selection and even then it's we're talking weeks and weeks of work to get through it so there is an enormous practical problem with how police can um, filter through that evidence to find what could potentially be that golden nugget of evidence that is the difference between a conviction and an acquittal at a criminal trial but we also have when we do look at the article 8 right to privacy the I, I think it's absolutely a fear of victims of serious sexual crimes now that they're being asked to hand over their mobile phones to police. And, and it is in some cases by some police officers, in my view, being used as a way to discredit um, victims to say, well, a, a jury won't find them, won't find her creditable because on the night that she says this happened, she's sending text messages to her friends three hours beforehand saying, oh, I hope I meet a cute man tonight. And of course, as we know, that is very different to saying I will have sex with anybody and any sex I have tonight will be consensual. Um, but those messages are used potentially by police, potentially by um, those defending 
to undermine the credibility of this person making the allegation. And that can be enormously intimidating for the person making the allegation because it stops being a question of, do I want to go to a police officer who on any view is a stranger and tell them about, hopefully, what would be the worst thing that has ever happened in some detail, in very often embarrassing and incredibly personal detail. And then do I want to give up the contents of all of my personal relationships with everybody else? And we have situations where police are telling victims of serious sexual crime that they're unlikely to be able to bring a prosecution if they haven't got their mobile phone. And that, I think, is is taking that um, that balance between privacy and investigation completely off kilter. Well, there was a form that that, that was released a few months ago. I don't, mm. I don't remember the exact context, but said something to that effect. If, if you hear this, is, by signing this form, you agree to give us everything on your mobile phone. And if you don't, I'm paraphrasing, the likelihood is we won't be able to um, conduct an investigation. And that seems, I mean, you know, I don't think there's anybody in the country who would be particularly happy with having the whole contents of the mobile phone, warts and all, given, you know, all the silly, embarrassing things that we put on that mobile phone or private work, you know, from if just as from a lawyer's perspective, I wouldn't want people looking through my emails because no, there's lots of important privileged stuff there um, mm. and lots of people will be in that situation. So how do you untangle that? I mean, how do you again it comes back to culture and, and and I think also there's my sense looking from slightly from the outside is that there's an element of not not just about is this person a victim but is this person a sort of worthy victim are, are they are they is there some moral that it's like a 19th century approach is there some are they morally corrupt you know they want to go out and get drunk and take drugs and, and meet a man therefore they sort of get what's coming to them. And that, that seems to be a real sort of cultural um, instinct, which is really hard to dislodge. Yeah, that's exactly it. And we have rules in, in the courtroom now that mean that you're not allowed to say, you know, Miss Johnson, have you ever had a one night stand when you're cross-examining your victim? Um, as, you, a pro, as the, as the um, defence. As the defence, yeah. yes. So there are very, very, very strict rules, um, which in my experience are very strictly enforced by judges about what you can and cannot ask um, somebody who alleges she was raped about her sexual history. Um, but that doesn't stop police officers from thinking about it. And I think your point about whether she is a worthy victim and um, uh, you know whether she is suitably moral to be considered a victim... Um, is is exactly on the nose because long before a jury makes their judgment, long before a judge stops in or steps in to stop an inappropriate question, you have police officers um, who are making those internal moral judgments themselves. And if a police officer is overworked, has 10 investigations to conclude, and there's one where a woman who he doesn't particularly like the look of thinks says, I'm not giving you my mobile phone, then that's an easy way for that officer to get a case off his desk and to not take it any further. The um, the the three girls uh, case, as I suppose it's now known, is is the classic example of police officers making moral judgments about their victims. The Rochdale abuse um, scandal, where young girls, who, as one officer famously put it, should have been drowned at birth from working class areas um, of Rochdale, were were groomed and abused um, by gangs of men. And even when that case was eventually prosecuted, and I say eventually because there was a, a long saga beforehand that I think we'd need several other podcasts to go into the detail of, but even when they were eventually prosecuted, one of those girls, who was, I think, 14 at the time, was put on the indictment as a, a child prostitute, as a madam, when anybody who understands anything about sexual offences law and about the age of consent would tell you that it's not possible to be a child prostitute, um, you're the victim of child sexual assault. Um, but it, you know, in those cases, the the views of the officers about whether or not these were worthy victims were an enormous part of what stopped those girls getting justice. And when arguably they were some of the most vulnerable people in society to begin with, and and really really needed it. Let's talk uh, 
briefly about the Cyprus case because mm. just because it's been in, it's been the most prominent recent case, although it's not in the UK, mm. of a of the difficulties. I think it's fair to say the difficulties that arise mm. um, with women being believed now with the proviso that we don't know the full facts of that case. Of course, um, yeah. and as things stand, although. Um, the 19-year-old woman is now at home. She's not been exonerated in the legal system, in the Cyprus legal system. But it does seem like there was some, from what we do know, and particularly from what, what, what was said by her lawyers, which I don't, I'm not sure was, was contradicted by the Cyprus Cypriot authorities, there were some troubling elements to the mm. way that case played out, and the way the investigation played out, which reflects some of the cultural issues that we're, we're talking about in the last few minutes mm, absolutely so this is the the case of the 19 year old woman who was on holiday and um she reported to police that she had been having consensual sex when friends of the man that she had been having consensual sex with came in and gang raped her um there was a forensic pathologist who recorded her scratches and bruises and found that they were consistent with the attack there was a a separate finding that they were also consistent with having been sustained um, in other ways, which, as we as lawyers know, is not at all uncommon for bruises. It's very rare that you get a bruise that could only have been caused in one way and one way only. So being consistent with and being with an attack and being consistent with other things isn't particularly unusual. Um, Twelve Israeli men who all denied raping her were arrested. Five were released when there was no DNA evidence linking them to the incident. The rest of them were then released when she revoked her complaint 10 days later. She has since said that police forced her to sign a retraction after, I think, eight hours of being questioned. She didn't have a lawyer with her. She didn't have an interpreter with her. Um, and those are, from a non, even a non-criminal practitioner point of view, those are very serious red flags. Those are absolute fundamental rights if you're being... Um, investigated if you're being questioned um it's the first thing that you're told if you're being interviewed by the police in this country is you do not have to say anything unless you wish to do so anything you do say may be used against you you are told that you have the right to a free um to free independent legal advice if you don't speak english then you you have a right to have an interpreter there so those key things, understanding what's being said to you and understanding the legal meaning of it are absolutely vital. That coupled with the fact that I don't think you need to be a psychiatric expert to anticipate that if you've been gang raped by 12 men, you might be particularly susceptible to pressure because it's very likely that you would be suffering from some level of post-traumatic stress at that stage. Um, there experts have said that um that it's likely that the statement was dictated by somebody who doesn't speak english as a first language which is consistent with what she then later said which is that she this was written out for her and she signed it under immense pressure um notwithstanding all of that a judge ruled that she had willfully indulged in public mischief by making a false report and found that the motivation was that she was angry that some of the men had used their phones to film her having consensual sex. Um, but and, it, and that footage was, was, was released. Yes. So I, I don't know how, but it, it's, it, it, people saw it. Yes. The wider public. Yeah, which is in itself a gross violation, I think. Um, supporters of hers who were in court have said that the judge told the court that he wouldn't consider whether she was raped or not which seems to suggest, although I, I don't have as much information about this as, as I think any of us would like, but it does seem to suggest that his view was whether or not she was raped. If she only made the report because they were filming it, then she's guilty of public mischief by making a false report, um, which goes against every legal and moral instinct that I think most of us would have. In, in, in the UK? Yes. Based yeah. on our... I mean, I don't know a lot about the, the Cypriot system, but though, the, the, presumably that's based on uh, some of the advances that have happened in recent decades in the way we think about these cases, rather than the traditional UK approach to, to the issue. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think 
it's a it's a small um it's a small compliment to pay ourselves to say we're not as bad as other countries <laughs> but um you know we've still got a lot of work to do she was um she was given a four month suspended sentence which is how she's able to come home um but everything about that case i think to anybody with any legal background is alarming and i think to the general public one thing that's interesting about it is the way that that case has been treated in the the british press is somewhat reassuring i think the fact that so many elements of the british press even those who have traditionally not been friends of women um have sided with her and have um, derided the system that has convicted her is reassuring but there's also i have that fear that there's a bit of well the british system's better than any others um rather than it necessarily being about protecting or, or defending an innocent woman and and she made even though she's she the reason she's come back is not because she's been exonerated or pardoned it's because she was given a suspended sentence which meant that she i mean even though she spent months detained on remand yeah um and then well, it was all on, on, on remand because she she was only sentenced and then she she was only sentenced last week and then... And then she was able to come home. ...was able to come home because she didn't have an immediate custodial sentence. Mm. Could that case still be appealed or go to the European Court of Human Rights now? I don't know about the uh, the internal appeal system of, of Cyprus, but I think there are certainly some serious concerns that I would have about well, about Article 3, as we've discussed, but also about the right to a fair trial and particularly um, the manner in which that supposed confession was obtained. In um, English law, the Police and Criminal Evidence Act has a provision that allows the exclusion of evidence if it was obtained in oppressive circumstances. I, I should say of, of confession evidence. Confession in the legal sense, meaning not necessarily saying I did it, but anything that that is um, potentially incriminating that you've said. Um, so Section 76 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act would, had the case been tried in the UK, have allowed her lawyers to say she'd been questioned for eight hours, she didn't have a lawyer, she didn't have an interpreter, she signed a statement, she didn't write it herself. All of this renders that confession unreliable and it shouldn't be put before a court. And I, I would be fairly confident about having that evidence excluded on that basis. Before we finish, mm. um, we, we've spoken a lot about rape um, mm. and sexual assault, but domestic violence is another area where these same kinds of issues about people being believed, about um, evidence where you've just got one person in a room with another person, you've got to prove based on physical, you know, um, whatever else evidence, evidence from mobile phones, mm. that domestic violence has occurred. This is an area which is... Um, still very difficult for the police is that fair i think it is fair i think um i think the criminal justice system has got a lot better at taking into account the impacts of domestic violence and coercive control um in my experience judges are a lot more sensitive and knowledgeable than they have been in previous years i think it is it is broadly true of police officers and lawyers within the cps as well there is a trend towards better understanding a broader approach to it of course we're helped by the fact that stalking is now formally a crime whereas it didn't used to be um coercive and controlling behavior is now formally a crime whereas it didn't used to be specifically set out can you just explain what that means coercive mm. control so we're talking about domestic abuse rather than necessarily domestic violence because domestic abuse can cover a whole range of behavior that doesn't necessarily involve physical violence um, when we talk about coercive control, we're talking about things like um, controlling how a person spends their money or controlling um, who a person sees. The the typical patterns of abusers often uh, relate to minimizing their victim's social circle, minimizing their power, minimizing their control over their own life. So that if a person ever feels that they might like to leave, they don't feel strong enough to because they don't have the, those support systems around them and um, they don't have that financial independence that perhaps they had when they entered the relationship um it's it's to an extent it's a as tough a crime to prove as anything else because 
you know, I might say to my husband, I'd rather you stayed in tonight than going to play football. But, um, and I don't think anybody would say that that's a problem unless I'm standing in front of the door stopping him from going or unless I'm emotionally abusing him and telling him that if he goes, he's a bad husband. So again, we're talking about the difference between um, things that happen in ordinary everyday relationships where there's a degree of uh, compromise and a degree of conversation about any decision that an individual makes or that a couple makes. And then we're talking about crossing the line into abusive, controlling behaviour where instead of saying maybe we should try to spend less money on takeaways this month we're saying I think I'm going to be in charge of the money now because you're spending too much money on takeaways yeah or, or I'm gonna we're locking the door in the evenings exactly exactly so it's the fact that it's been recognized as a crime is really positive and really helpful the difficulty that we have and I think an area where the criminal justice system could really develop and improve is Coercive and controlling behavior is something that is a crime, but it's not a defense. And that's something that I think is a, a fundamental um, tension within the criminal justice system. So um, any of your listeners with an interest in criminal law will know that um, duress is an incredibly difficult defense to prove. Um, so if you robbed a bank because I held a gun to your head and told you that you had to do it or I was going to... Uh, shoot you then that might be that might be um, a defensive duress but if I held a gun to your head and told you that if you didn't do it I was going to shoot you and then watched you walk out the door and off you went to the bank and on the way you passed three police officers and didn't say to them somebody's just threatened my life unless I've uh, unless I robbed this bank then that defense might not necessarily be available to you um, so it's it's a very very tough defense to run of of duress what we have got now is a situation where if a man holds a gun to a woman's head and forces her to do something, she has a defense. But having an emotional gun held to her head doesn't necessarily make a difference. I had a case um, some time ago now where a woman was prosecuted for sending indecent images of children to a man with whom she was in an abusive relationship. And there were pages and pages and pages of messages showing the slow creep of the abuse of this man to the point where this woman who had previously been independent, she was a, an intelligent woman, had become a mouse under his control. The whole case eventually came to light when she attempted to take her life and then confessed everything to an A&E nurse. As a result of her information, they found the man who'd been abusing her and found that he'd been um, committing all sorts of other horrific sex crimes um, but they also prosecuted her even though there was this catalogue of messages um, demonstrating the abuse that was that was being perpetrated against her and the control that she was under because coercive control while it is a crime it is still not a defense and because it was only an emotional gun that she had to her head not a physical one um, the law gave her gave her no safety no option so she has a criminal conviction now. She's a registered sex offender when, to my mind, she was absolutely another one of this man's victims. She was another part of the abuse. So that's where I think the law needs to develop a little more. And it, it seems to be a conflict that we, on the one hand, recognize that it's possible for a person to emotionally abuse somebody to the extent where you have almost finite say over what they do and to not then recognize that as as a potential criminal defence when what that person is then made to do is a crime. I mean, it might, it, 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 when we say it's not a criminal defence, it might, it might change the way you're prosecuted. I'm just thinking about the case of Sally Challen, and that, that's the most recent high-profile case, mm. where I think it, it's, so, so she killed her husband about a decade, about 10 years ago um, with a hammer. Mm. And was convicted of murder, um, although she claimed diminished capacity. Mm. And there had been, at the time, overwhelming evidence of Richard Challen, the, 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 her husband and, and who she killed, his controlling behaviour. But coercive control wasn't a legal concept mm. until later on. But she eventually, she eventually appealed and succeeded. Well, she won her appeal on on the basis that um, it was a 
a partial defence to murder because of the evidence of this this overwhelming abuse. Um, the CPS then decided not to uh, not to retry her effectively, so that was an end to it. But it it would be interesting to see what their tactic would have been had um, had they decided to go ahead and, and and press on with the retrial. The other important thing to say is that there are many instances, such as loss of control, for example, that are partial defences to murder, but not to anything else. Um, so that's when the law becomes a little bit more complex. And although we do see, in some cases, the discretion that the CPS have on whether or not it's in the public interest to prosecute being exercised in favour of, of vulnerable and, and abused women. In my view, I think as long as it's still a discretion, we've got a problem because we could have two CPS lawyers looking at two identical cases and reaching two different decisions, and that doesn't seem particularly just to me. I, I think we're going to wrap up there, although the, there's so many other issues that, that, that can be discussed around this area. It's so difficult and complicated and has... All, issues around culture around human rights around technology that we're only just starting to unravel so thank you for starting that unraveling and maybe we'll follow up with a another edition of this in in, in this particular area that'll be wonderful thank you for having me great thanks so much harriet Thank you so much to Harriet Johnson for a really interesting and important discussion. The Better Human podcast is supported by Goldsmiths Law and their pioneering new LLB undergraduate course taught in London. And for 2020, they're launching a criminal justice and human rights pathway. If you find the podcast interesting and want it to continue, then please consider giving a few pounds a month via our Patreon. That's patreon.com forward slash betterhuman. Thank you to Samantha Bruff, who is the editor of the podcast, and Natasha Holcroft-Eames, who is the research producer. Until next time, I'm Adam Wagner. This is the Better Human Podcast. Goodbye. Goodbye.